0: Welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast arm of The Wider Project, where we do still believe that another world is possible, and that together we can create a future we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility, and it's my pleasure to introduce you once again to Rob Percival, author of The Meat Paradox. Rob was a guest on the podcast back in episode 144 last summer, when the hardback of his book had just come out. Since then, Rob, it's fair to say, has become a global superstar. He's been invited to speak to groups across the spectrum of industry and culture and politics about the nature of the food that we eat. This is such a huge, huge topic. And we both left that first conversation feeling that we'd just begun to scrape the surface of possibility and that it would be good to talk again. And we had scheduled another podcast for later this year. But then I saw the book had just come out in paperback. And that kind of neatly coincided with my having a complete technological crash in this week's interview. And there was going to be a week of silence. But then Rob really kindly agreed to fill in at really short notice so that we could talk more about life and death and food and the nature of the metacrisis and where that might all take us. There is so much to this that really cuts to the core of who we are and where we're heading as a species. And we got to the end feeling yet again that there was much more to say. We opened up an enormous camo worms right at the end that I really wasn't expecting. But in the meantime, we were able to go more deeply into the things that matter around a topic that touches on absolutely everybody. So this conversation will continue. But in the meantime, people of the podcast, please do welcome Rob Percival, author of The Meat Paradox. Rob Percival, thank you for filling in at emergency and at short notice. And congratulations on your paperback coming out, because this has proved to be quite a timely crisis on my part. How are you?
1: Very well, thank you. Good. Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) And how is the paperback doing? Doing? It's kind of early days yet, it's only just come out?
1: So paperback's just released, um, uh, yeah, which is really exciting. And um, to to mark the occasion, it's um, being taken on by Radio 4 as their book of the week. Um, So from 30th of January, there'll be a Serialized version being read 9.45 each morning, little snippets from across the book. Um, so really looking forward to that. And that's going to be available both live and online afterwards. So yeah, do Fantastic. check it out.
0: Fantastic. Yes. And if we can get a link to that retrospectively, I'll put it in because this podcast should be going out just to coincide with that. So congratulations. Getting on ready for is a huge coup. Well done to your publishers. And so we want, obviously, to continue the conversation that we began when the hardback had just come out. But I have a question for the year and I'm going to plough on with it until it ceases to be useful to me. So the question is, what makes your heart sing right now and where does that take you? And you are allowed to say your paperback coming out makes your heart <laughs> sing. That would be okay.
1: Uh, that's an excellently positive question to start on. What makes my heart sing? Well, I uh, at the moment I'm uh, I, I have a very fortunate situation where I'm spending 12 months in Cornwall living more or less on a beach um, and I'm out walking the dog each morning on the beach and the, I've got to see some spectacular sunrises which are more difficult to see from my slightly more urban corner of South London which is where I'm normally resident. So I yeah I feel very fortunate to be here and it's just ridiculous seeing the sunrise over the ocean each morning it, absolutely stunning and and, and where does it make me want to be? Um, I think the answer is nowhere, except where I am. Um, it's, it's quite rare to feel um, uh, that you're in just the right place um, and not pining after being somewhere else. So that would be it. Yes.
0: Well done. Thank you. Faith and I, bizarrely enough, we had a holiday, which has never happened pretty much in 20 years of being together. And we went to Cornwall and exactly that. Waking up in the morning and thinking, my goodness, this is just... Glorious. We can see why people want to come and live here. Mm -hmm. Later, you can tell me where you are. We were near St. Agnes. It was really beautiful. So, anyway, yes, Glorious Sunrises with the dog. Good. Let's move back to your book because we were really deeply looking at indigenous cultures, current indigenous cultures, historic indigenous cultures. And it seemed to both of us when we finished that we just begun to look at the surface of The Meat Paradox, which is the title of your book, and our discomfort with killing in order to survive. And since then, I have really begun to explore more deeply the nature of death and what it is and our discomfort with it. And also been listening to some quite interesting more neuropsychology podcasts on our entire culture's incapacity to deal with our own death. And I would like to explore that more deeply, but I would also like to find out what has changed for you in the time since The Hardback came out, because life is evolving and you've had a lot of conversations around this book with a lot of interesting people. Where have they taken you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I wrote this book partly because I was bored, (laughs) (laughs) Um, bored bored with the, the way the meat debate had become so polarized and, and set into predictable camps you knew what everyone thought they 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 were wearing their colors they were they, the battle lines were drawn um and and I hoped it would open up um some more interesting conversations some slightly different conversations um and that has been the case it's been a I've had a, a really enjoyable <laughs> six months um uh speaking at events and and, and promoting the book and, and and having the opportunity to talk through um some of its ideas and I think the the, the two sort of themes that stick out for me. Um, one is around the, this idea that I bring to the book that the challenges we're facing aren't entirely novel, that, that many cultures have in their own way been forced to grapple with this question. What does it mean that we kill to eat? Uh, and, and, and that has landed with people in a really interesting way that that they perhaps weren't, um, cognizant of that, the vegan movement um, and and the meat debate is played out on social media. It feels hyper modern. It feels very contemporary. But actually, there's a much deeper undercurrent to all this. So it's been it's been really interesting unpicking that with people. And then there's a sort of component of the debate that feels like it's uh, evolved and still evolving in in the sort of um, in the public space um, is around alternative proteins and the role cellular agriculture, precision fermentation, lab grown meat. Might play for better or for worse in 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 shifting our relationship with with animals and with the natural world and 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 so on. So that that has become I- increasingly prevalent in in the conversations that that I've been having as well.
0: And where do they take you in your thinking? Let's take us forward ten years to twenty thirty three. In an ideal world, if we culturally have got to grips with our Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and the technology of gods and have made a series of the best decisions that we could make. And we can look at what those decisions might be. Where do you think we are in terms of how we are feeding the people of the planet at that point? Have you? That's possibly quite a difficult question. But I think if we don't look forward to where we think we want to go, then we end up moving by default. So does that open doors at all?
1: Hmm. So I mean, it's it's easy to, um, in a sense, to sort of paint idealized pictures of of the future, and 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 I sort of cleave, cleave to one as as anyone does. I you know I'm very much sitting within the the agroecology movements. We have this. Um, uh, this sort of pathway laid out where we think about the the shift in farming that we want to see towards more nature-friendly production, the shift in diets we want to see towards uh, less highly processed foods, um, fresher, more natural foods in balance with that that land use system, and a shift in the, the power dynamics of the food system, um, sort of redistribution of power back to producers, back to citizens, and so on. That's that's the ideal. But then we have the, the reality of um, food system politics and human psychology to, to grapple with and, and and the the interesting question to grapple with in, in that in that context is, you know, what what's the um What's the trade-off what sacrifices are you willing to make in in pursuit of that that ideal outcome and and alternative proteins that in this space are they they're, they're obviously not not the ideal but could they play a helpful role in in, in shifting diets and, and land use or are you selling out to the big corporations if you embrace alternative proteins or are you taking a step in the right direction even if you're not quite at the ideal yet so there, there's there's something to unpick around that but um yeah there's there's no doubt that we we need that vision of 10 years from now and we need to be pressing ahead for the best outcome along the way.
0: Thank you. So there feels to be quite a lot of depth in that. I recently read a blog by Chris Smage who wrote Small Farm Futures, which was a response to Regenesis, but was beginning to look at some of these questions, particularly the lab-grown meat precision fermentation area. And that took me a little bit further down the line. It seems to me that If we take a step back and take a broader view that isn't simply the food system view and I'm remembering right at the beginning of the last conversation I had been reading the IPES report on the politics of protein which still seems to me remarkably cogent even though it was written basically a year ago and one of the key killer quotes at the start was if they can get you asking the wrong questions then they don't have to worry about the answers and I got caught in a flame war as a result of posting something about this on Twitter, in which one of the arguments seemed to be, I, it seems to me that precision fermentation, lab-grown meat, the few papers I've seen that have looked at the energy return over energy invested have not been kind to this, that the energy return is really bad. It requires basically an industrial culture to support industrially produced food. And the response to that a tweet this morning was, well, we'll use the excess renewable power when the sun is shining to create the lab-grown meat, so that's no problem. And I've become quite a lot more hardcore since you and I spoke in terms of understanding the degree to which our power use is part of the problem. So there's a Mm -hmm. really good book called Overshoot, and I can't remember the name of the author, but I will put it in the show notes and I will remember by the end of the the podcast. And the core thesis of that is, he doesn't say we're a plague species, but he says we, sh- we exhibit all of the criteria of the species that we would identify as plague species, which is we get a, a carbon source and for every other species on the planet, that is food. We get an energy source. Our population soars on the back of this sudden abundance of energy. And then the energy runs out and the population collapses. Our energy is fossil fuel. Ancient sunlight converted over millions of years into coal or oil or gas. And I discovered recently, we have burned 50% of the fossil fuel that has ever been burned by humanity since 1990, which just really left me gobsmacked. And so we've got this very abundant energy source. If Various numbers are spun around, but the one that sticks in my head is we've got a rolling use of 19 terawatts. At any given moment around the planet, we're using 19 terawatts. And that to be within the potentially sustainable field, we need to drop that to five. If we're using a significant proportion, or indeed any of that, you know, reducing our, our power use to 25% of what it currently is, and that's globally. So those of us in the Western-educated, industrial-rich, democratic, weird, global North are going to have to use a lot less because one of the other numbers that stuck was we in the West use between fifteen and eighteen thousand kilowatts per annum. In Yemen, it's sixty-nine. In bits of the Gaza Strip, it's zero point one. So there's a quite a big disparity. Mm. We're not going to be using that for producing food that we could use by letting sunlight hit grass without any industrial processes in between. It just seems that it's we're very good at looking very narrowly at at a single bit of a problem and then assuming everything else stays the same and that allows us to fix the problem. And if the problem is how do we feed 8 billion people, we make the assumption that everything else continues. We still have an industrial culture and we just need to work out the protein balance. Sorry, that was a bit of a rant, but it's, it's, I wasn't really thinking in these ways when we last spoke. And so are you coming up against anyone who is thinking through, or are you thinking through the ways that we feed whatever population we decide is a stable population globally, whatever, however we make that decision? Why are we focusing? Why does it all come down to the source of amino acid chains, which seems to me to be quite a narrow part of our nutrition, does that make sense as a question? Would you just like to talk to what I've just said?
1: It does, yeah. No, that, that's fascinating and, and and resonates. I mean, the organic agriculture, agroecological farming is um, yeah photovoltaic; it's powered by the sun, and that's one of the strongest arguments for us um, uh, adopting this mode of production at the moment. Um, farming is heavily reliant on fossil fuel-based fertilisers, fossil fuel-based agrochemicals, um, energy-intensive processing, international supply chains, and so on. So there's a really good case for relocalizing uh, to a certain degree our, our food system and, and and focusing on those low-input forms of, of food production and aligning our diets accordingly. I guess there's a, there's a case that can be made on the alternative protein side plausibly around... Resilience in in the face of extreme climate variability. So the, the the Holocene is over, as we know. the The global climate in which agriculture was first made possible yeah. has gone. That doesn't exist anymore, and and conditions um, uh, are going to get progressively tougher over the next century. And, and there's resilience in, in agroecological production. It has healthier soils, better structured soils, soils that are better equipped to deal with drought and flood and so on. But there could still be a case for saying that um perhaps some sort of industrial processing to, to supplement this could, could help with food security, if it can be scaled in such the way that it isn't too energy intensive and is reliant on renewables and so on. And that's where precision fermentation comes in, as plausibly producing a good whack of protein and fat, and um, to supplement our diet um, and and helping shield us against that that extreme climate variability, but there there are as as you alluded to um, significant questions still around um, uh, energy usage and 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 so on and and the energy requirement to scale the technology. I guess that has to be traded against the the immediate imperative as well to to wean ourselves off in, intensive intensively farmed meat. So there's a uh, a sort of um an ethical case, obviously, for doing that. There's a, a a land use and climate case for just getting people to eat slightly differently, displacing that produce from their diets through a, an alternative is is easier and quicker, arguably than than persuading them to eat a pile of mung beans and higher welfare organic beef. So there's all sorts of trade-offs that we face. But I think that that, that question that you pose um, is is really the big one in the background. How do we align? um food production and human society with the within planetary boundaries and within a uh, a sort of energy paradigm that that is going to be cohesive with the future and it's difficult to see us getting to that place um w- with an overt reliance on um, energy intensive food production in in laboratories and so on
0: because it isn't just weaning them off industrially produced meat which is essential I think I haven't heard anybody argue. Maybe I just don't listen to the industrial farmers, which is true. I really don't. They're they're outside my bubble. But there isn't a single human being that I've listened to who's suggested that industrially produced meat is a, either a good thing or can continue. It's morally and ethically, it's an abomination. And you can't continue growing grain to force into, let's say, feedlot cattle or chickens in a version of chicken Auschwitz in order to produce meat. That's That's not Going to be a thing or it needs to not be a thing but it seems to me that the industrial production of monocultures of non-animal food is still really problematic that is among beans or the carrots or whatever are grown on, on 100 acres of industrially farmed land which is essentially the what we're doing then is turning fossil fuels into carrots instead of turning fossil fuels into beef it's still a catastrophe. We're still looking at industrial runoff annihilating the oceans. The GOES report reckons it's a combination of pH change because of CO2 in the atmosphere and microplastics. But the third one is is toxicity and dead oceans by 2045. And that's that's very soon. And 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 we don't know what happens if the oceans become devoid of life, but it's not going to be good. And it's not an experiment we want to run. So we have to stop all industrial agriculture, I would have thought. And I, I don't know what the pathway is. If if we were able to create a, gov- a global governance structure that, that was not wholly owned by the multinationals, we have a global governance structure at the moment, we just don't acknowledge it, and it is wholly owned by the multinationals. If we were able to create one that wasn't, can you see a pathway within a timescale that is relevant for moving from industrial the entire industrial food system, which involves a lot of transport along long distances, to a local system that is going to feed people without leading to mass starvation.
1: So, I, I, I want to come back first to that your, your comment that, that no one's really arguing for the perpetuation of industrial production and factory farming animals. And uh, yeah, I really wish that was true. I I was invited to speak um, a couple of months ago at a essentially a global meat industry summit um it was convened with a focus on feeding animals um but but feed particularly for animals in intensive systems it was sponsored by cargill All the big players were there and, and, and so on and i i was shocked <laughs> by the degree to which um the environmental concerns remained on the periphery. So these guys do not have a clue. They do not understand the situation we're in. They do not understand uh, the crisis we're facing and they're still faffing around the edges in in terms of their um, response. Um, A a large part of their response um, is focused on um, efficiency of production. So Cargill has committed to lowering its greenhouse gas the greenhouse gas intensity of its products by 30%. So that means that your your average chicken wing will be 30% less greenhouse gas intensive than, than, you know, that's their ambition. That's what they're working towards, or the the average beef burger. But of course, they're they're not looking at what their total emissions are. They're still talking about growth. And this was the the mantra that came through um, the entire conference, growth, growth, growth. They were concerned about the market, lots of talk about the impact of COVID and these big sort of crises like swine flu that's hitting the Chinese pork market. There was zero talk about contracting, downsizing, aligning the industry with um, the Paris Agreement. Um, they were completely clueless. Um, and and the argument that they kept bubbling to the surface was that global demand for meat is rising. Uh, people need to be fed. There are still hundreds of millions of people who are malnourished or hungry. Um, and we've got to a moral responsibility to not just continue what we're doing, but make it better by making it more efficient, expanding into new markets, uh, and and so on. Uh, so it, it was it was really disturbing.
0: How, how did they? First of all, why did they invite you? And second, how, how did what what did you say to them, and how did it go down?
1: Uh, so they they'd convened a panel um, around um, uh, communications and media profile, and and they'd invited me in my capacity as author of the meat paradox. To comment on um on the question is is the industry doing everything it can to improve its public image
0: oh dear god
1: <laughs> which um uh, i yeah, obviously um had a, had a lot to say on this question and you know i, I just put the challenge to them if if you want your, your image is never going to be um improved as long as you're part of the problem and and you've got some difficult questions to grapple with um at the moment your head's in the sand and 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 so on and so on so i i, I tried to um challenge them as best I could to face up to some of the realities that, that they were avoiding.
0: And you got out alive. You're still here. So
1: it was it was split. There was 50% of the audience would not meet my eye afterwards and were sort of avoiding me and the other half were coming up and saying, I'm so glad you said that. It needed to be said and so on. So, okay.
0: But that's amazing because I would have thought it would be 90-10.
1: Yeah, no, it was it was split.
0: I mean 50 is is remarkable, actually.
1: Wow. Yeah. So we're your initial question was is there a pathway out of this? Is there a, is there a way out? And I think I think it's really difficult, but um, but yeah, it it needs the the sort of pincer approach. We need regulation. We need governments to step up and regulate the hell out of these industries, um, which obviously is um, politically challenging. And on the the other side, we need mass behaviour change and and dietary change, and 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 that again, is, is proving very challenging. But if you can bring those two together, then there is a, a route out of this storm.
0: Okay, so let's look at the mass behaviour change. I, I got to, after our last conversation, is just don't eat anything that comes in plastic. That was my, <laughs> and I realise, you know, I'm incredibly privileged. We ate from our polytunnel garden area all summer and, and didn't ever go to the shops to buy food, but that's, you know, I live in the back end of nowhere. Most people can't do this. What would get us to where we need to go in terms of ordinary people changing their behavior fastest?
1: I mean, if just stop buying chicken (laughs) would be, Okay. well, I mean, that's obviously, that's not the big, that's not the whole answer, but you take the chicken industry as, as an example. Um, chicken is the uk's favourite meat it makes up almost 50% of the meat that we consume its demand for chicken is growing year on year and this this steady demand um you know which has been more challenging the last year or two but this the overarching picture for the last 10 years is steady demand this is um this has prompted these, these big multinationals, about 70-80% of the chicken that we eat is produced by four companies um, who no one's ever heard of, Avara and, and Cargill. these guys in the background. It's prompted them to invest in new sheds. They're still building these sheds, lots of them up the River Y, where they're very polluting. You'll have seen Thank this. You. Yes. Uh, but these sheds, they have a 10 a year lifespan. Um, farmers take significant loans to build them. The, the contracts are there to help them pay off the loan over a 10 year period. So there's this lock-in, this constant lock-in. We're locked in for another 10 years. Um, And as as long as demand remains strong and steady, this is going to continue to happen. It's very difficult to turn the corner. But in in a hypothetical situation where 50% of Britain tomorrow stopped buying chicken, then that would dent the confidence they would presumably stop building these things there obviously there's lots more that needs to be done around um, a just transition for farmers and and uh, and, and a shift in, in terms of how we produce our food but demand is part of what locks us in so eating differently can can shift the politics of the food system so your your individual choices aren't meaningless they do on mass contribute towards the the future we do or don't want to see
0: right and a lot of the narrative that we've had has been stop eating red meat. For reasons, because somehow pigs and chickens, it's better, and and why, why, and and yes, I live near the Severn, which is almost as bad as the Y. And you're right; there's these extraordinary chicken factories, and we're now in a situation where the Environment Agency has said, okay, the, the runoff into the river is so bad that you can't build anything anymore, and not even for people who have no homes, and and you guarantee, you know, you've got big willow beds or reed beds or you know you guarantee that the water coming out is of drinkable quality just absolutely nothing and we're going but chicken factories and they're going well we need to feed people mm. whoa so stop eating chicken okay stop eating chicken that would do in a slightly longer term yeah that's that's really disrupt the industry just actually commit to no chicken at all for a year and get all of your friends to do the same just as a exercise of individual agency, it seems to me that's not a bad thing. Although, if your neighbour has got the chicken pecking around on their, their land and they've done what it takes to turn it into something you can eat, I'm guessing that's a different thing. How do we get... Most of our people live in cities. They don't have an acre of land on which to grow their own stuff. Is it the case that we could feed our existing urban infrastructure on nutritious food that they would like without needing very long supply chains, without burning fossil fuels to bring stuff in? Or would do we have to begin the process of moving people from cities into rural areas in order to be able to create self-sufficient people? Does that make sense as a question? yeah
1: that makes sense so i i mean with we've been involved in some some modeling various ngos um i work for the soil association various ngos in in this space have been looking at this question over the past couple of years how how should britain feed itself basically and and to what degree can it feed itself through these low input agroecological or organic style farming systems um you'll be aware that the, um, the yields sometimes can be slightly lower when you cut out the agrochemicals. That implies more sprawling land use. Um, does that work when we have commitments to climate and nature and so on? And Green Alliance, another NGO, actually just had a report out on this in the last couple of weeks, modelling different scenarios. And the the gist of it is that we can have our cake and eat it. <laughs> we can um, we can shift to this nature-friendly farming, and we can free up or we can commit much more land to nature. So there's this land sharing, land sparing debate. We can have both, and we can ensure that Britain has a uh, or the UK has a has a healthy diet. We have adequate food, but it requires a radical shift in in the way that we eat and as as well as the, the way that we farm. Um, it, it requires a, a move to much more um plant-based diet, that is to say more fresh veg, more nuts, more pulses, more beans and so on, less and better meat, um, ruminant animals still having a, a really important role in this context. Um, far, far fewer pigs and chickens. But there is a healthy sustainable diet that we can produce in the UK while also meeting our commitments to to nature and nature recovery and the climate and so on. Um does that require people to move out of the cities into rural areas? I, I, I'm not I'm not sure. I know there are some voices who 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 advocate for, for this sort of relocalization and, and so on, this agrarian localism, as it's sometimes called. I think there's a case to be made for keeping folks concentrated in cities and ensuring that nature has space to flourish as well. So um yeah I don't know what the answer to that is.
0: I'm, I'll be talking to Chris Mage in a couple of weeks, so I will talk to him about that. I will find the Green Alliance report and put it in the show notes, because that sounds really interesting. I didn't know that had been done. I know that the Sustainable Food Trust had begun to look at feeding Britain, And it seemed to me that we were kind of at the 80% margin of we could feed ourselves 80% of what we need, but we would still need to be bringing stuff in. But it seems to me, if we're going from the 19 terawatts to the 5 terawatts, and shifting our entire culture in the ways that we're going to need, which seemed to me much more dramatic than I had previously understood. I've been listening to Simon Michaud, and he's got really interesting ideas he's putting to the Swedish and Finnish governments who are actually engaging with what does a post-carbon world look like. And his suggestion is, for instance, you have a hub built around a hospital. You need a hospital. We still need some kind of medicine. It can't be as energy intensive as it has been, but it needs people need good health and then you work out how many people do you need to supply the hospital and to supply each other and you don't end up with a sprawling um, kind of London of however many millions are in London but you have a unit and the land around it and it's self-sufficient and then what you're moving around the world is information rather than goods and goods and food and materials given that the material supply chains are running out quite fast. So if we can feed ourselves, and what we need to do is change our diet. Hodmodod seem to be doing this in the UK. How do we feed ourselves the pulses that we need without having to bring in soya from the Amazon or lentils from far-off places so that the far-off places can feed themselves? We haven't looked at the micronutrients yet. It, it seems to me one of the catastrophes of our time is that we let the cargills and exons of this world define our food and our food became empty calories. It became sugar carbs and, and fats of various sorts because that's what our bodies crave, because we still have basically paleolithic physiology. And that the people who are dying of type 2 diabetes because they're massively overweight are also underfed with micronutrients. They're They're in some ways starving because the micronutrients aren't there. And I remember... Attending a webinar with Dan Kittridge of the BioNutrient Food Association, who was saying, you know, vegans are busy supplementing B12, but if we were able to create the right or restore the soil to its life, where the roots go down and make the right associations with the bacteria and the mycorrhizal networks, there is enough B12. It, the, it mines it, and that we should be eating food that has everything that we need because it always has had in the past. Are we looking in the Green Alliance or the Soil Association or anybody else, are we looking at micronutrients as well as the obvious proteins, fats and carbs?
1: Yeah, I think that's, um, that's pretty interesting around b 2 I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, but um, we, I think there's, there's a, there's a case to be made for looking at micronutrients and then there's a case to be made for looking beyond them to, towards whole foods. So there's a, there's a sort of history within the processed food industry of focusing on a particular micronutrient um, and you know shoving it into a processed product and thereby claiming it's healthy. So there's there's an unhealthy way that, that one can focus on micronutrients. And actually, what the the science is increasingly showing is that whole foods are more than the sum of their nutrient parts. So they have this this food matrix, as it's called, um, which is um, this really complex. A uh, biochemical structure packed full of, if it's a plant, for example, lots of polyphenols and antioxidants, all the stuff, the secondary metabolites that have um, come through in its growth, and and those polyphenols and and um, secondary compounds, uh, we increasingly understand have important consequences for our health. We we typically focus on these sort of um, couple of dozen micronutrients, macronutrients, um, whereas there are tens of thousands of of these um, biochemical compounds. Um, in our food, and, and a lot of them, it seems have have important contributions to, to make um, in in terms of dietary health, and one of the reasons that ultra processed foods, these these really heavily processed foods, um, seem to be bad for us, is that all that stuff has been zapped out. It's all been broken down. The matrix has been destroyed, and that has implications for for the gut microbiome, which thrives on this biochemical complexity it has implications for the satiety system which doesn't recognize that the food is coming through um where we're constantly hungry partly as a, as a result of, of this lost um sort of complexity yes yeah, so there, there, there's there's an important discussion to be had around micronutrient adequacy in relation to different dietary patterns and making sure that we're getting all the bits that we need um but beyond that the best way of delivering that that adequacy it seems is through yeah, whole foods and and, um, and foods in their more natural form.
0: And presumably the precision fermentation people, I don't know enough about that, but is lab-grown stuff, it, does it count as a whole food in any way? Or is it just, here, look, we're going to make you something that has the texture and the taste that will fool your body into thinking you're having, I don't know, bacon or chicken?
1: So your precision fermentation is primarily around producing fats and proteins um, uh, so, you, so it, they're, they're not whole foods if, if you like it is those those component parts and i guess if you can if, if you're just displacing so so for example there, there are lots of processed foods that have industrially farmed dairy in them as an ingredient um, and and it seems like the the first kind of use for these precision fermentation Proteins might be to displace um, the sort of real animal proteins out of the, the processed products. We're we're not. Right. Um, I think it's a few steps down the line before they're sort of trying to compete um, as like a cheese or a milk product or whatever right. it may be. But but the short answer is no. They're, they're not whole foods in the in the sense that I've just been describing.
0: Right, and because we're looking at potentially setting up a micro dairy, I've been really looking into the work that has been done on the difference between industrially produced milk. And pasture-fed, you know, calf on cow that I think has an emotional impact. But I wouldn't be surprised if we discovered way down the line, if we survived long enough as a species, that there was a difference there too. And the, the level of what's in the milk that our great-great-grandparents would have drunk because it's all there was compared to the industrially produced stuff, it's like two different products, but, but they're labelled the same. Okay, We're running out of time, I notice, or at least time is moving on. And I really want to explore something that we touched on tangentially in our last conversation, which is that a lot of the emotive power of the meat paradox and the questions that we're asking ourselves seems to me to come from our very ambivalent relationship with death, or at least actually our terror of death. And that you and I both had devastating experiences in abattoirs and as a result changed our views of, or potentially I changed my view anyway, yours was probably already there, of the nature of our relationship with the animals that we might eat. But then I began to become aware of regenerative farming, of the agroecology that you talked about, and of the devastation that is any monoculture, that all industrial farming involves killing things. It's just less overt and they don't have such big eyelashes, so we don't necessarily project onto them our fear of death. And your book, The Meat Paradox, really goes into indigenous cultures and the ways that they have embedded in their different societies in different ways To negotiate with the animals that they eat. And there seems never to be a negotiation with the plants that they eat. Maybe there is, and maybe it's less obvious, or maybe we just haven't looked at it. However, I'm coming to a question, I promise. I listened to a really interesting podcast about the extent to which our denial of the complexity and severity and size of our current crisis, the meta crisis, is linked to our denial of death and particularly a really interesting study where they put people in front of a screen and asked them various questions and at some point on the screen the word death was flashed across so fast that it didn't register consciously but it did register subconsciously and people's political views shifted so they had been these were americans they had been democrats and you know, they they had previously stated that they would support various policies, which are democratic policies, and that they would support various democratic individuals. And not just Joe Biden, who to me is kind of on the David Cameron side of the political spectrum, but people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are more to the left. You flash death across the screen, they become aware of their own mortality at a really deep level, and they move into the Trump-supporting, MAGA-supporting, QAnon-embracing, climate denying side of the spectrum. And that struck me as something that we really need to address. Somewhere along the line, we have to get people adjusted to the idea that death is coming. And I wondered how that settled with you in all of this debate.
1: Mm. So what what to make of our mortality and and facing up to our mortality is you know it's probably fair to say this is the one of the oldest questions and conundrums of the human condition and and, and the meat paradox is, as i present it in the book is is very much tied up with that question because there's this deep rooted capacity as i describe it to for us to identify with animals to some degree in in whatever sense um and, and so when we're taking their lives that that's recognized to be a, a morally significant act and, and one which perhaps reminds us of our own mortality so there's, there's something to, to unpick, I think, about how, uh, we, yeah, we'll come back to that, about how, how animal death reminds us of our own mortality and, and the role that plays in the meat paradox. Um, in relation to that experiment, uh, that sounds, yeah, uh, I guess, in, in a sense, uh, unexpected, but also we know that the political right is sort of plays on ideas of security and um, perhaps um, fear to a certain degree. Uh, so if those emotions are being evoked, um, then that's a fascinating, yeah, fascinating response. Um, but in in relation to um, the meat paradox, there there's certainly some evidence that um, reminders um, uh, that we find animal death disturbing because it reminds us of our own mortality, and that's one of the reasons that we're so good at averting our gaze and and looking away from from what's going on behind our dinner plate.
0: Thank you. Yes, and and because we put the dog down last week, I've and I knew that it was coming. I've really been immersed in what is it, what is life. What is that boundary between breathing and not breathing, heart beating and heart not beating? And what is the difference between quality and quantity? And you were saying in our previous conversations that you were writing another book and were coming across people who think they can not die, at which I, I had to say, I think death seems quite an exciting adventure at the moment, and I really want to explore it. But but taking our fear of death to the point of genuinely believing that we can avoid it altogether, and remain alive on a planet that can sustain any kind of life. i kind of interested in how they think they can survive under four degrees centigrade of warming and escalating. But there are two questions there. One, are there genuinely people who think they don't have to die? And how do they see themselves surviving in a four degrees C world?
1: So this is the, the, the transhumanist um, dream, if you like. And so I've, I've been reading a lot about biotechnologies, genetic modification and so on. Um, initially, in the context of their applications, uh, on animals. Um, that's sort of part of the focus of the next book. But there, there is this group which suggests that we should be applying these technologies to ourselves in pursuit of radical life um, extension and um, the enhancement of our cognitive and, and physical abilities. Transhumanism is this sort of um, umbrella ideology under which are gathered all sorts of fairly diverse um, social groups and, and and philosophical ideas but broadly um the the idea that binds them together is that we should apply science technology and reason to modify what it means to become human uh, to overcome our biological limitations ultimately to evolve into a a post-human state where we've become something beyond um, what we currently recognise as as humanity. And it sounds kind of wacky, but the, these ideas have deeply infiltrated the sort of Silicon Valley uh, tech world, you know, the, the world's richest men, and they're usually men, are espousing these ideas or investing in these technologies parts of our society are sort of implicitly oriented towards this anyway this this idea of of human enhancement and um ever greater integration with technology into our um, bodies and minds and so on so there's a a a sort of lively um school of thought within that transhumanist movement which says that yeah we can actually overcome death we should stop looking at aging as inevitable and start looking at as a, a disease to be treated like like any other disease and and someday we might we might get there and might evolve into a cyborg along the way. It, it sounds wacky, but they're, they're, there's they're science already sitting in the background, which which suggests that, that we can be blurring the boundaries of our species in, in the years and decades ahead.
0: Okay, so my first question is, to what end? And I'm also thinking, they don't mean 8, mil, 8 billion people doing this, do they? They mean quite a small section of probably white, probably blokes in Silicon Valley. Is there within this movement a sense of what humanity is for other than just surviving forever and consuming everything?
1: I think it's the sense that humanity is a stage, uh, you know, a, a stepping stone in, in, in our in our evolutionary journey. There's no reason to think that we are the, the end product, the final result. And, and actually, we now have, um, uh, uniquely in the animal world, the the tools and, and technology to direct the next stage of our evolution. Um, sometimes this is dressed up in a sort of language of alleviating suffering and and becoming wiser and more empathetic and, and and so on sometimes it's more sort of libertarian and it's just uh you know it's a, a, every person should have the right to do what they want with their own body and their own genome and 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 you know if, if that if that means experimenting with um you know novel gene editing techniques that that might extend your life then then so be it so it's 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 a kind of unruly wild west but it's one that's actually deeply penetrating the sort of central uh, institutions of our society, in a way, this this is the the orientation of some of the technological um, corporations and and um, uh, academic institutions. This is the way they're pointing, and and obviously there's there's lots to be figured out in terms of how any of these wacky, if that's what they are, ideas are actually delivered. But but this attitude towards death sits, sits at the centre of it. Death is um it's an abomination. It's to be overcome. It's uh, it's not inevitable. It's it's within our grasp to do something about it. And they even they they brand those who um who disagree with them, deathist, as though they're sort of part of a sort of death worshipping cult that um just accepts our mortality when it doesn't need to. So anyway, it's um it's a fascinating world to be be looking into.
0: Gosh, I think I think I would struggle to sleep actually quite <laughs> soon in that. So I'm clearly a deathist, that's fine, I'll, I'll embrace <laughs> that one. Are they also complete climate deniers? Because I don't see how the idea of any significant number of people living forever, presumably they also have the freedom to reproduce. So we're talking about infinite exponential, oh, this is why Musk is trying to get to Mars, obviously.
1: Yeah, 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 so that's it. So they're, they're typically more concerned about artificial intelligence, Um posing an existential threat to humanity then the climate crisis sort of often slips under the radar or it's seen as a catalyst that's the that's the reason that we should accelerate our innovation and focus on harnessing these technologies to to alter what we are we need to be smarter and and so on to to address this crisis so let's just get on with modifying our genome and and they have this attitude towards science and technology which thinks that we 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 can only get our, ourselves out of this predicament with better technology with more innovation and they point towards a broad historical correlate correlation between population density and innovation so you need lots of people to come up with these innovations so let's um uh let's stop thinking about there being you know in inverted brackets too many people on this planet we need more we need we need to keep the population growing and growing and growing to keep innovation accelerating and then we'll spill over onto another planet eventually but you're, you're absolutely right to name Elon Musk. I mean, he's got eight, ten children. This is the philosophy that he espouses. That's why he's part of the reason, at least, that he's um seeking uh, to yeah, um, have so many kids.
0: Wow. Well, that was unexpected. I, I had no <laughs> idea. I just thought Musk was, was a bit bonkers to be frank and i i had heard him say that he believed that we were in that the chances of this being based reality were so small as as to be zero and therefore we are in a computer simulation i thought he was just trying to level up out of the simulation i didn't realize he was also trying to live forever wow gosh there's so much we could take this but actually that probably would be a whole other podcast tell you what when the next book comes out shall we do a podcast then that would be kind of good i think because because that's A can of worms of potentially infinite dimensions. Mm, That's not to unpick. Wow. Okay. Well, in that case, is there anything else that you wanted to say to celebrate your paperback of the meat paradox? Was there anything that you wanted to unpick in the last few minutes that that wasn't heading down that direction?
1: Having just got onto space travel and infinite life, we we probably uh, it's probably best to draw the line there. There's uh, lots lots to uh lots to unpack now. The, the me paradox it's it's now it's in all the shops. It's available online. I'm on social media on Twitter and um and yeah that we've barely scratched the surface of um still of some of the themes in the book. Um so so yeah do check it out and um and and listen out for for Radio Four next week as well.
0: Brilliant. Yes, I'll put links to everything into the show notes. And in the meantime, congratulations. Thank you. On on writing something that could potentially change the way that we do things. It's fantastic. Well done, that man. And thank you so much for filling in in our emergency podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So there we go. That's it for another week. And didn't we just open up an enormous can of worms? I have to say, I genuinely am at this moment feeling that death is an extraordinary and exciting next step on our journey. I'm going to tell you a very brief story, which is that when we buried Abigail up the hill, I put a buzzard feather in before we filled in the grave. And then I connected with my dreamy apprentice, Lou, because I was in tiny pieces and really wasn't in a state where it was sensible or possible even for me to check in on Abs on her journey. So I asked if Lou would do that on the night. So that was a week ago yesterday. And I didn't tell her anything else. And she had a dream where the short version is she was standing on a stage in an auditorium and a phoenix arose and erupted, flew up, and a feather spiraled down and landed in the spotlight on the stage. And Lou wrote to me the next day saying, Don't know much about feathers, can't really identify, but it was definitely a raptor feather, definitely banded brown and white. And at some point I will find a way of putting a picture somehow on this podcast to show you the feather that I had put on the grave, which was absolutely banded, brown and white. And yes, I am really intimately involved with death at the moment, thinking about it very deeply in every way that I know how. And I have just finished a book which is told from the perspective of someone who dies in the first two pages. And that makes me a deathist, I guess, because I genuinely think that death is the next step on our journey and is essential and that delaying it for a long time or even indefinitely would be extremely unwise. So we'll go into that, I guess, at some point when I'm a bit more emotionally stable and Rob's got another book coming out. And in the meantime, think about this. I'm not sure that denial of death is useful at any level. And if you think it really is, feel free to write to me and explain why, other than an existential terror of the unknown, because that's not a good reason to avoid something. Anyway, right, I shall stop. We will be back next week with another conversation in which I sincerely hope not to screw up the technology such that there is no sound. And in the meantime, enormous heartfelt thanks to Caro C for managing the sound production whenever I send her failed files. Huge thanks also to Faith Tillery for managing the website and me when I'm in small fractured emotional pieces. To Anne Thomas for the transcripts and as ever to you for listening. We really would not be here without you. And I did think, I still do think that Ratings and reviews are good for our egos. They are that. But I also thought they weren't good for much else, and various of you have written to explain to me that they are actually very useful. So we would really like you to spread this. Word of mouth is still by far the best way that we reach lots of people. And if you know of anybody who is interested in the ethics and philosophy and practicality of what we eat, and how we find a way to eat in ways that are genuinely regenerative, then please do send them this link. But also, five stars in a review would be handy. If you have time, that would be lovely. Thank you. And that is it for now. See you next week. Thank you, and goodbye.